listen to me. Oh, I just wish you'd listen to me. I'm so nice. I'm so lovely and all these things. No, rather, he is pointing back and reminding them of the work that God did through the preaching of the gospel, how souls were saved, how the church in Thessalonica had received the gospel through persecution, how Paul had preached uh, through persecution, and though all of the world that seemed to come against them, and though all the world seemed to come against Paul, and though all the world seemed to come against the gospel, that the gospel and the gospel preached with power, with authority, by the Spirit of God, always brings forth fruit. It gives strength. It gives endurance. It gives all that is needed to a not just a new church and new believers, but as well to even the Apostle Paul himself, as well to Silas and Timothy, who were mentioned there in chapter 1, verse 1. And so we see that God is very much at work, and Paul is reminding them of these things to strengthen them, to encourage them, to not show them something new, but much like John had done in First John chapter, uh, excuse me, in the letter of First John, uh, continuing to not show them something new, some sort of new revelation, but rather reminding them of what they already know. You and I need that today. And as we come to this spot, we're going to see in verse number 10 down that Paul here in verse number 10 describes his blamelessness before God and how the Thessalonians had witnessed his pr- true profession and walk. Much of this section that we've been dealing with is dealing with having a real faith to walk with sincerity. Uh, the, the world today is a very fake world, if we understand this, right? The vast majority of people, right, literally billions of people are on multi, uh, several multitudes of different uh, uh, of social media uh, networks and things, um, spend much of their world in a world that is not physical. It is in a world that is on a keyboard, on a screen, and, and in your pocket, right, on your cell phone. And, and so we have lost and gone and grown out of touch with what is real, with reality. Now, spiritually speaking, we have done much the same. We have produced many fake churches. We have produced much fake belief, uh, belief or faith. We have produced many things that are just simply unsincere. Unsincerity will not cut the mustard. And even sincerity in the wrong thing won't cut the mustard. We must be sincere in the things of Christ. We must be sincere in faith in the gospel because only that saves. But that as well, as we find that that is the only way to live the Christian life. We are never called to put on a face. As a matter of fact, When we talk about putting on a face, right, it's the same word and idea that we get uh, hypocrite from. It was a play actor. They they put a mask on. Today, I want you to know, if you came in and you showed up in the parking lot and you were arguing with your spouse, that never happens the way the church does it, right? You're rushing to get kids to church. Things are stressful. The time change, right? The whole thing, right? I want you to know this. You don't have to worry about trying to put a face on before you open the door. As a matter of fact, don't do that. Show up here, prepared to worship the Lord, and know that He says, come anyways. You're a mess today. Good. Come. Join the rest of us. Right? You you think, oh, well, I came here today and I was doing pretty good this morning. Well, good. Join the rest of us. Nevertheless, just simply come and be sincere. Let the Lord work in your heart through His Word, through His Spirit. And what is needed today now more than ever is real sincerity. Now, verse 10 tells us, ye are witnesses. This is the idea that they have seen this. They have literally witnessed uh, his faith. It says, you are witnesses and God. Also, how holily and justly and unblameably we behaved ourselves among you that believe. Now, this is very important to hear. Paul is certain about the way in which he lived. He is not just satisfied in this sense, but he is certain that he has done all that he can to live blameless for the gospel message. He has lived blameless to preach the gospel message because, as we know in 2 Timothy 
uh, excuse me, in, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, giving the, um, the qualifications of pastor, the very first one, you know what that is? Blameless. That's important. Does blameless mean sinless? No. But blameless does mean blameless. Meaning this, that from the outside looking in, that there should be no big giant red flag hovering above you that goes, no, disqualified, disqualified. Think about this. Uh, we often, right, we go around and we tell people, you know, I'm a Christian or this sort of thing, or people might know that. But are there some things in our life that are these sort of red flags that go, ooh, I don't know if they are or not. Now, we've got to be very careful with how in which we live our life. There was a t-shirt I had when I was a, a teenager. You have to keep in mind, I didn't have many friends. I was a, <laughs> I was a good Christian teenager. I didn't do anything uh, like go to parties or anything like that. But I wore Christian t-shirts to school all the time. Uh, got me, <laughs> made me very popular, right? I had one that said, accused of being a Christian, is there enough evidence to convict you? And I wore that. It was always very convicting for myself because I wanted to make sure that as I walked amongst my peers, that I lived as blameless as possible, that there was nothing that goes, nope, not a Christian, nope, false Christian, nope, insincere Christian. The last thing that the world needs, and the last thing that Paul wanted to see in the early church, and in the church, this young church at Thessalonica, was to see uh, some sort of insincerity. Morris writes that Paul solemnly maintains that the Thessalonians can bear testimony on his behalf. He says, you is emphatic, you of all people. And so certain is he that the preacher's behavior had been above reproach, that he says that God is his witness. He says, you've witnessed my blamelessness. Even God has seen this. Now, sometimes you and I might be at the place where we feel like we're doing pretty good with our Christian walk, and we go, you know, hey, you've seen how I'm doing, right? I'm doing pretty good, right? But it's another thing to go, hey, you can see how I'm doing, and it's another thing to be able to go, God sees. Now, does God see? Absolutely every time. But here, Paul is literally... Um, if you could imagine this sort of courtroom experience, if you will, of calling up witnesses, he's got a whole church in Thessalonica that are witnesses to his walk, his sincerity, his realness, his faith, his boldness, his endurance through persecution. But then he calls up another witness to the stand to testify on his behalf. It's God himself. I wonder if the Lord was to testify on our behalf, what would he have to say? The Lord sees not just what the early Thessalonian church there saw about Paul. They saw the outside. They saw what he had done. They saw what he had preached. They had the, the see and the hear sort of test, if you will. Right? They could see how he lived, see how he walked, see how he talked. They could hear it. They could uh, see how he lived. But God knows the motives. Right? That is key. Guzik writes, It is impressive that Paul could freely appeal to his own life as an example. Paul didn't have to say, Please don't look at my life. Look to Jesus. Paul wanted people to look to Jesus, but he could also tell them to look at his life because the power of Jesus was real in his life. If you have real faith, that should automatically make you a real example to others. Now, let me ask you this, right? This is simple. Easy pop quiz question here. Do all of us sin today? Yes. All right. Y'all are raising Just me. There you go. All right. A few of you, right? Got to move around a little bit, right? We sin, don't we? So none of us are perfect, but... We must be sincere. You see, sincerity in the eyes of the Lord is some sort of, if you will, this covering to our, our faults and our failures. Being that we're a Christian, and even a sincere Christian, does not mean that we won't trip up, stumble, fall. Those are those times. Even First John talked about that. But we will not continuously live in a lifestyle contrary to the Christian faith, contrary to the Bible doctrine, contrary to how God has called us to walk. Now notice this. 
Because he has real faith, he has become a real example, and that should be the same for all of us. Think about this this very morning, right? We've got young kids on this hallway. We've got teachers that we have to make sure that they are an example. Parents, an example. Us, an example. We must be an example, and we should exemplify not just how to do church. And Paul's not looking or saying that either. What Paul is saying is he's not looking to just exemplify how to be a good church person, but how to live and know Christ. That is the key. Now, as we look here in verse number 10, he gives three sort of uh, adjectives about his walk, if you will. He says, holily, justly, and unblameably. One commentator puts it this way and describes each one by saying, holily towards God, justly towards men, unblameably in relation to ourselves. This is what it should look like in our life. Has or has not God said that you should be, must be holy, right? He says, I've called you to be holy, right? He's called us a holy and a peculiar people, all these sorts of things. We, we are to called to be a called out assembly to literally be different. We are called to holiness. Holiness doesn't look like the world. Holiness as well does not look like insincerity or false Christianity, nor does it look like just churchianity. It is real and genuine, but it must be towards God first. If we are not living holily, if you will, towards the Lord, then nothing else will matter. The eyes of the Lord see not just our actions, the ears of the Lord not only hear what we have to say, but He knows and sees our very heart and motive. We must live a holy life before God. We had talked about this past Wednesday in, in Genesis as we're studying through it on Wednesday nights, and we dealt with um, Enoch, and it says that Enoch and Noah are the only two there that are mentioned that they walked with God. And that walking with God is this close fellowship, communion, relationship, and it's this idea of walking blamelessly, not sinlessly, but blamelessly, this holy life, a holy living. Now, you can only live holy if you have a knowledge of the Holy One. If you have communion and fellowship with the Holy One, with the Holy God, and we can. Not because we've done anything to earn it, not because of who we are, but rather because of what He has done and accomplished for us so that we can know Him. We can enter into His presence. To think that unholy man can know a holy God, that is the beauty of the cross. That is the beauty of what Christ has done for us so that we can know Him. We can live then with a knowledge of the holy then leads to that holy life. But then he says justly. And this is the idea of justly towards men. He didn't go around, and as he talked about early in the first nine verses of this chapter, <clears throat> he said, I didn't walk around going, I, hey, I'm going to heal. I'm going to do some healing today at the temple, but I'm going to need a crisp $5 bill and also I'm going to throw out a tip jar too. Didn't, didn't do that. He didn't say, I'm going to wipe my brow with a hanky and sell it online. Nope. He didn't say, if you call 1-800-HEAL-ME-PAUL, that you'll get... He didn't say that. No. Why? Because he didn't come for filthy lucre. He didn't come with enticing words. He didn't come preaching health, wealth, prosperity. He came preaching Christ crucified. It's, it's simple. How do we have a sincere ministry? How do we do rightly before people? We keep Christ the focus. If Christ is not the focus, then we won't be holy before Him, nor will we live justly before others. Now, when we talk about justice today, that's sort of this hot-button topic issue. What is justice and all these things? Here's what justice is. There's only one justice. It's God's justice. It is only what God sees to be what is right. The idea of justice here is what is fair, what is right, what is true. 
It is not what is always liked. It is not what is always felt uh, good about. This is what is right. And what is right is always right. Let's do a simple test here, right? Is it wrong to murder? Okay, all right. Is it always wrong to murder? Yes. You guys are a little more unsure about that. Is murder wrong? Yes. Is it always wrong? Yes. Is lying wrong? (laughs) Is lying always wrong? Oh, that's the one that kind of hurts us. We go, oh, yeah, murder is always wrong. Lying, well, sometimes you... Ah, yeah, yeah, it's not so good, is it, right? We got to see here, this stuff matters. Now, how about this? We saw sort of the negative side of something that's always true. How about this? Is it always right to praise the Lord? Yes. All right, I'm not sure if you guys aren't sure. I'll give you a word bank next time or a <laughs> multiple choice. It's always right. And if it's always right, it remains right. Just is just. Now, God is faithful and just. He forgives us and He cleanses us of our sins. He cleanses us from all unrighteousness. That's who He is. And so, therefore, we should live justly before man. When someone does you wrong, what should you do? <laughs> Turn the other cheek, right? What, what happened? You get punched in the head. So what do you do? You bash in their head. They cut you off. So then what do you do? You zip around, you speed up, and you cut them off, right? That's what the Bible says to do. No. Justly, what is he talking about here? What did Paul go through? Let's remember that. When Paul saw the establishment of the church of Thessalonica, what happened? He got driven out of there by persecuting Jews. Did he fight them? Nope. Did he beat them? Did he make booby traps for them on his way out of town? No. He did what Jesus said, which was to bless those that curse you to turn the other cheek, pray for those who persecute you. That's what justice looks like. Now that's a hard one, isn't it? And here's the third one he says. Not only did he say I live holy and justly and unblameably, we behaved ourselves. He said not just me, but we. This is us. We behaved ourselves among you that believe, among the church. You guys saw this. God saw this. This idea of this unblameably, and this is in relation to ourselves. He says, I can at the end of the day put my head on my pillow and know today I did what God wanted me to do. Today I did what God told me to do. Today I did what God said is right to do. It is always better to put your head on your pillow knowing that that day you made all the world angry while doing what God said was right and true. It is better to obey God than man. The first term, holy, points to the character involved in being set apart for God. And the second, righteous or just, uh, is to conformity to a norm. For biblical writers, that norm is the, is the law of God. The third, blameless, means without cause for reproach. So meaning this, Paul not only knew what was always right, but he sought to always do that which was right before God, before men, and in his inner man. That is what a sincere Christian looks like. Many of us go, well, i got to live right before God, right? But then we get cut off. Someone makes us upset. There's some injustice done to us, right? Like that getting cut off or, you know, you're fired for no reason or, or um, I don't know, someone steals your truck or something. I don't know, right? It could be a million things. What do we do? 
We do that which is right. We must do what is right, what is just, what is holy before God and man. Now in verses 11 and 12 here. He says, As ye know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father doth his children, that ye would walk worthy of God who hath called you unto his kingdom and glory. Here in verse 11 and 12, Paul reminds them of the message that he gave to them to receive the gospel and to then live out their lives to the glory of God. All of the Christian life is for the gospel, by the gospel, and all for the glory of God. Everything must be done that way. The children's ministry going on right now, you know what that's for? To teach young children the gospel to the glory of God. You know what this Sunday school class is for here in the sanctuary? It is to teach us the depths and the heights and the width of the gospel of Christ for the glory of God. What is our outreach ministries for? It is to proclaim the gospel of Christ to the glory of God. What is our times of fellowship for? It is to live in the gospel of Christ to the glory of God. Everything in the church, everything in the heart of the Christian must be for the gospel and the glory of God. If it's not, then we don't need it. That is the very basis of our Christian life. It is the very basis of church life. And if we deviate to the right or to the left, we're going to be in some trouble. I can tell you, you know where most churches have their splits and their issues from? It's because they deviate from the gospel and the glory of God. Something besides the gospel or the glory of God become more important. How many of y'all have heard of church splits over colors of carpet or buildings, right? It's not just a preacher joke. This, that's real stuff that really happens. I, I, y'all, let's think about this, right? There's some splits that happen, and it's some hard stuff to deal with. Pastoral infidelity, or there's some sort of big uh, extortion going on in the church, or there's a doctrinal issue, right? There's some bad stuff out there. Think about this. There's some churches in our own area that were not church plants to further the gospel. They were church plants because somebody got mad at some other church and left that church and went, and I'm going to start my own. This has happened everywhere. The reason why these things happen is because we leave the importance and the necessity of the gospel and the glory of God. Once we do that, watch out. We've got to keep it simple. Now here Thomas writes about this. He says, Christians need both fatherly teaching and advice and motherly care. Now, if we remember here, as he says in verse 11, you know that how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father doth his children. Now, just a few verses ago, if you remember back towards verse 7 and 8, he says, but we were gentle among you, even as a nurse cherisheth her children. You know who cannot nurse a child? A father. Y'all know what nurse means, right? Here's that idea of a tenderness. Paul says, we treated you tenderly and carefully like a mother does her child, like a nurse would do with an infant. Because literally the church was still in an infant stage to a degree. They were still needing the milk of the word. They were still needing their diaper change, right? All that stuff. But then he says here in verse 11, he says, and we exhorted you, we taught you, we charged every one of you as a father doth his children. That the Father does this correcting and this teaching and this admonishing, going, here's all these life lessons. Here's, here's what you need to be a man, right? Here's what you need to grow up. Now, it takes both, doesn't it? To, to have someone to grow up to know Christ, to have someone who grows up 
and can contribute to society to do well it often if we see biblically from the very beginning it takes a godly mother and a godly father now we have found some uh there are some uh some folks who maybe grew up and they didn't have a father in the picture but they had a godly mother and and were greatly used the lord praise god for those but nevertheless we see how the bible had meant it to be the balance was always there that tenderness that carefulness that loving kindness but as well then that exhortation of the father the discipline of the father paul not only has a deep care for them but as well as a deep concern for them to learn and live the truth so verses 7 and 8 show us how much he loves them and cares for them and nurtures them and would do anything he had said earlier on to to do anything for them is the idea but then because remember back in verse 8 he said i would even give up my own soul it's carefulness. That's a tenderness. It's a love. But now he's, he's exhorting and he's showing, I don't want you to just feel all mushy and gushy. You know that I love you. I want you to learn the truth and then live the truth. Every Christian is to learn and live the truth, but you must have both. You cannot live what you have not learned. Think about it this way. The Christian life is this. It begins with knowledge, right? And the knowledge never ceases. You ever heard uh, someone who says, you know, you see someone graduate high school and you say, well, keep on learning, right? Whether they go off to college or not, you, you're always learning. You're always learning. Anytime I talk to anyone who's, who's new in ministry, and I still consider myself pretty new in ministry, I always say, you're always learning. Keep knowing. Keep growing. Keep learning. Keep learning. Keep learning, right? The knowledge, right, to know allows us to then grow. You will not grow if you do not know, Right? More here, more here. The more I know God and know who He is here, the more it sinks down into my heart that I might believe Him and then live it out. I must learn so that I then I can live it out. I have to not only know what to do for God, but the why. And the why is the gospel and glory. The what is the gospel and glory. Everything boils down to those things that he's talked about. Here, as one writes, Sorensen, he says, they exhorted and comforted and charged the Thessalonian converts. The word translated as exhorted, parakaleo, has the sense of encouraged. The word translated as comforted, paramutheomai, has a range of thought from admonishing to consoling. Finally, the word translated as charge, martureo, literally, uh, though literally having the idea to bear witness, probably in this context has the sense of imploring. He used the uh, analogy of a father working with his children. To that degree, he encouraged, admonished, and implored them to do as they ought. Know, grow, go, show. This is the Christian life. And it comes back around. You might want to be the one who's always going and showing. These are the ones in church who are always wanting to witness, the ones who are always wanting to work. First, a volunteer. They're the ones sweeping, mopping. They're the ones doing all these things, right? That's wonderful. We need some workers, don't we? But don't forget to come back around to knowing God. This is a balance between worship and work, and we need the both together. The one drives the one. Worship drives work, right? Knowing God drives growing in God. And the more we know and grow, that drives the going and the showing, right? Here, um, 2 Timothy tells us this. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. 
We need all three, don't we? We need not just the tender care of a mother, but we need the exhortation of the father. We need doctrine. We don't just need the practical, right? Because the doctrine is the practical. We've talked about this. They go hand in hand. We need them both together. We cannot just go from one extreme and have all this work without ever having the worship. We cannot go to all this place of where all we do is exhort and implore without ever admonishing and encouraging and helping, right? We need all of these working together. How do we find them working together? When we simply preach the Word, as he had said in chapter 1, verse number 5 and 6, For our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power and the Holy Ghost, and much assurance as you know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. And you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the Word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Ghost. It is the power of the Word of God and the power of the Spirit of God that applies the Word of God. That is what changes us. Uh, that is what gives us what we need. That is what exhorts and reproves and rebukes. And that is what uh, gives all of these things here that we find in 1 Thessalonians 11. It brings the comfort. It brings the exhortation. It brings the charging to us. We need all three. One other commentator writes here, then as he goes, he says, that ye would walk worthy of God, right? who hath called you unto his kingdom and glory. Here's where we get sort of this peak moment of what this is all leading up to. Uh, the BKC writes, The appeal to lead lives worthy of God is the highest of all for those who have tasted God's grace and salvation. Paul heightened his exhortation by reminding his readers that they had been specially called by God, called to enter and be partakers in his kingdom, and called to glorify and share in God's glory. What does it mean here, the kingdom? This is twofold here. We have to understand this. One, there's a spiritual kingdom of which Christ is very much ruling and reigning right now. That right now, those of us who are in Christ, we are seated in heavenly places. We are risen with Christ. We've talked about this a lot. And that is important to know. But then as well, this other idea that you and I one day get to be a part of the physical and literal kingdom of God where Christ will, uh, at his second coming, return and he will set up shop and rule and reign in his millennial kingdom is what we often call it, a thousand year reign. That Paul is looking forward to both. Uh, in this sense, he says that you would walk worthy of God who hath called you into his kingdom both now and later, both already and not yet. Does that make sense? And if we remember this, all throughout 1 Thessalonians, what do we find? The rapture, the coming of Christ, the rapture, the coming of Christ, these end time things. Why? Because the great hope of the gospel is not just for this world, but it is for the world to come. It is for the fact that Christ is going to resurrect us, that we shall be glorified, that we shall rule and reign with Him and that kingdom. And that is what we're longing and looking forward to. And so this is what Paul is going to continue to point them back to over and over and over again. Now, as we get here, Sorensen writes, this call, right, that you would walk worthy of God, this call is uh, also a call to a life of holiness and to share in the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. In the teaching of Jesus, as the, in the preaching of Paul, the kingdom of God is not a territory, but the rule of God that has begun to be exercised in the present time and that will be revealed in the future in all its fullness and glory at the time of Christ's royal coming. Already, not yet. Right now and later. Right? Uh, that was Green, excuse me, not Sorensen. Um, Sorensen does though, right? He says, God has graciously invited us to his kingdom and to partake of his glory. It is only becoming for us, therefore, to walk worthy of that end. So Paul has spent 11 verses to get us to verse 12. 11 verses of going, this is how we lived among you, and reminding them of the gospel, reminding them of what is important, reminding them 
of their tender care towards the church as far and as well as the not just the motherly care that they gave but the fatherly exhortation and, and, and teaching and he brings it all to this point so that way the church at Thessalonica would walk worthy of God who hath called you unto his kingdom and glory all of those Sunday school lessons were for this one little part today as we bring it to a close so that today Victory Way Baptist Church would walk worthy of God and his kingdom so that you and I would walk worthy of God and his kingdom are we walking worthy when the gospel is preached by power and practice and received with faith and joy God will be drawing his people to a life of holiness and usefulness for his kingdom both now and forever now and later so today, as we bring this to a close, I want us to have this really kind of hit home. Christ is coming. Very much so. These things are coming to a pass, and even if He doesn't come or call us out of here in our lifetime, you're still going to see Him one day face to face. Today, right now, are you walking worthy of what He has called you to? Are we walking worthy as a church of the kingdom of God the gospel of God, for the glory of God. May our hearts be searched this morning and be challenged by his word that we would want to live as Paul, Silas, and Timothy did, that we might be blameless before God, that we might live for the days ahead, that we might live even more so for the eternal things that matter most. Let us pray. Lord, we love you. We want to thank you for this time. We're grateful for your faithfulness, your goodness, your kindness to us. We thank you, Lord, that you have called us to your kingdom. We pray, God, that you would allow us to work to walk worthy, Lord, that we would have hearts that would not just be um, desirous of, of wanting to do well before you, but that we would want to live justly before man and one another. I pray, God, that you would give us a spirit of unity today, Lord, that as we sing, that we would lift up our voices to you, that we would worship you and praise you, that in all things today, you, you would get the honor and the glory. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, y'all, we'll take a pause for the calls.